It was the scariest, um, most difficult, confusing, exciting, most wonderful day of my life. I mean, <laughs> I mean, when you when you realize that God is allowing you to be a father, I, I don't I don't know what to compare that to, you know. And then, on top of that, when you when it, when it seems that he's deemed you fit to be the stepfather to his son, that's a, that's overwhelming. Um, he's a he's perfectly healthy, happy baby boy that um, came into the world, I guess, just like most every other kid, you know. Um, I, I get why they call it labor. <laughs> I, I mean, since I was 12, I've worked every day of my life, but I, I've never worked as hard as Mary worked that night. She was, she was amazing. And then not just that night, I mean, through all of it, through, through the months of people talking about us behind our back and um, the week-long journey to Bethlehem. And then, and then we get there, and she, she, she takes an ordinary feeding trough and, uh, and turns it into a cradle. And none of it seemed to phase her. She's amazing. And you know what, through, through all of it, I never heard her once ask why. Why? You know, she just... She just did everything God asked her to do. And if she didn't understand why things happened, she knew God was in control. She just, she, she, she followed his will. I, I get, I get it. Man, I get why God chose her. I really do. What I don't, understand is why he chose me. Well, Merry Christmas. You realize, many of you do because you're students of the Word, that the central theme of the Old Testament is the coming king who will rule in God's promised kingdom. And over and over we're told in the Old Testament that there's an individual that will be righteous he will have wisdom, he will have power and authority, and the right to reign not only over Israel, but over the entire earth. This coming king, in fact, the Old Testament says, will have the power to bruise Satan's head. We read that in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. And take back man's dominion that was lost through sin and establish a kingdom on earth that will extend out through eternity. In fact, Isaiah wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and then 6 and 7, he wrote, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's interesting to me that as I study uh, scripture and, and every year around this time, obviously, study the Christmas story again, I understand that the prophecy had been given but then 400 years of silence began with the warning that closed the Old Testament in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where Malachi wrote, Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. That's how Malachi chapter 4 ends, and then God is silent for 400 years. Has God ever been silent in your life? There have been times when, when you ask the question, God, are you even there? Are you listening to me? Can you imagine if God was silent for your entire life? Because for many generations, that's the way it was. God hadn't spoken. God hadn't done anything for 400 years. And during this time, Israel was under the control of the Persians, if you know your history. And then the Greeks, when Alexander the Great defeated Darius, the king of Persia. And while Alexander did allow some level of religious freedom, he strongly promoted also the Greek lifestyle, which was characterized by humanism and ungodliness. After Alexander died, the Jews were ruled by a series of successors who overthrew the rightful line of the priesthood and they defiled and desecrated the temple. And eventually, after a year of war and violence, the temple was restored. But around 63 BC, Pompey of Rome conquered Palestine and put the Jewish people under the control of the Caesars. And that eventually led to Herod being made king of Judea and the Roman emperor and senate. This would be the nation that taxed and controlled the Jews, and eventually this would be the leadership that would actually execute the Messiah on a Roman cross. And it was during that span of the Greek and Roman occupations that two important political and religious groups emerged in Palestine. There were the Pharisees, who added to the law of Moses, we've been talking about them in the book of Galatians, and through oral tradition, and eventually they considered their own laws actually more important than the laws that God had established. And while some of what they said was true, most of it was just simply, as we've been learning in Galatians, most of, us, most of it was just simply hollow legalism and a lack of compassion that they had for other people, and that totally canceled out their message. The Sadducees, on the other hand, represented the rich people, the aristocrats. The Sadducee wielded power from the, from the Sanhedrin, and they rejected the Mosaic books of the Old Testament. And they were generally just simply shadows of the Greeks whom they greatly admired and aligned themselves with. And it was those events, that rush of events, that eventually set the stage for Christ. And it had a profound impact on the Jewish people. In fact, both Jews and pagans from other nations were becoming dissatisfied with religion. The pagans were beginning to question the validity of polytheism and Romans and Greeks were drawn from their mythologies toward the Hebrew scriptures, which were now easily readable in the Greek and in the Latin. 
And the Jews, if you know your history and you remember, they were very despondent. And once again, they were conquered and oppressed as people. It seemed like it was that way all the way through the Old Testament. Hope was certainly running low for them, and their faith was even lower. They were convinced at this particular point that oh, the only thing that could save them was this promised coming Messiah. And yet, as I said earlier, the problem was they hadn't heard from this God in 400 years. Can you imagine knowing that prophecy had been given and then for 400 years, nothing happens? That's where these people were. God had been silent. Now, the New Testament, on the other hand, tells the story of how hope came, not only for the Jews, but for the entire world. Christ's fulfillment, Christ's birth, is, is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was anticipated, and it was recognized by so many who, who sought him out. It was the, the Roman centurion. It was the wise men who came to greet that new little baby, the Messiah. It was the Pharisee Nicodemus who came to Jesus. Those all recognized that he was the Messiah. But there were 400 years of silence that were broken, really in just a moment of time, with the greatest story that's ever been told. And that is what we've been talking about in the book of Galatians. That is the gospel. The gospel. And that brings us to Matthew chapter 1. If you have your Bible, turn there. We're going to look at that text, only we're going to obviously, from our introduction, we're going to look at it from just a little bit of a different perspective. Now the birth of Jesus, verse 18 says, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Problem. Verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man, a nice man, a kind man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he's going to save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. I really believe that one of the most overlooked characters in all of Scripture, in all of Scripture, is Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. And God used this simple man in such an incredibly unique way to help accomplish his redemptive plan for mankind. And let me say at the outset that there are some of you that are sitting there this morning and you're asking yourself the question, can God ever use me? I tend to be very insignificant. There aren't a lot of people outside of my own family circle who actually know me, who know what, what little gifts I might possess. Could God ever use me? If there ever was a character in Scripture who was used in an incredible way and yet was so obscure, it was Joseph. And if it does nothing else for you this morning to hear recited the story again from Matthew chapter 1, maybe for some of you it will convince you, maybe for the first time, that you are significant, that God can use you in an incredible way. It certainly happened in the life of Joseph. We don't know much about him other than he was from the family of David. He was poor. He was a carpenter, as in his trade, not as in Joel and Terry Carpenter's son. He, he was a carpenter. And from what we read, he was all around just a, a good guy. 
He was really the kind of guy, in fact, as I've thought about it, if I was actually going to let my daughter marry a guy, he would be the kind of guy. Now, since it's not going to happen, it really doesn't matter. But if I was going to, dads, this would be the kind of guy that you'd be interested in, other than he was pretty poor. <laughs> you might prefer he had just a little bit more money in the bank, but other than that, he was a good guy. But I feel bad that not more is said about Joseph. Most of the time, Joseph is regulated to being the guy behind Mary. Look at the nativity. Very often, Joseph is standing there undistinguishable from the shepherds. Maybe just a step up, you know? Maybe he got an extra little color in his robe. But other than that, he looks just like the shepherds, and you're going, who's the dad? Right? That's Joseph. Mary, on the other hand, uh, she gets the Magnificat. That song, she sings. In the Christmas plays, Mary gets the adoration. She gets the solo. Joseph's main line is knocking at a door, simply saying, hey, my wife's pregnant. We need some place for her to have a baby. That's it. That's his line. That's all he gets. Other than his care for Mary, he would appear to be almost meaningless in God's plan. And that is until we examine this text that we're looking at here this morning in Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew's account of Joseph's encounter with an angel one evening, everything changes if we look at this closely on how we view Joseph. Look at verse 18 again. Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Obviously, in any culture, you know, problem, right? The blinking lights go off. Something's happened that wasn't the way it was supposed to be. Now remember, too, that these two people, Joseph and Mary, they were very young. In fact, most Bible scholars believe that it's very possible that they were as young as 12 and 13 years old. Unbelievable when you think about it. And they were betrothed. Sometimes we use, in fact, in, in a lot of uh, translations, a lot of paraphrases of Scripture, they use the word engaged, and it kind of gives us a wrong idea of what that was. We, we kind of think about that, that, you know, maybe Joseph had given, had given her a ring or or, or maybe that she had his class ring, you know, hanging on a piece of yarn around his neck. Kids don't do that anymore, do they? But back in the day, back in the day, we did that. Or you could give your class ring to, to a girl, and she would wrap yarn. Any, any guy ever do that? All right, none of you would admit it, but some of you did it, I guarantee you. They wrapped yarn at the back of the ring, and the girl would put that on. And, you know, it's just kind of like, hey, we're together, we're a couple. Their betrothal was much more than that. In fact, the Old Testament and the rabbis, as well as in the rabbinical writings, distinguish two stages of a Hebrew marriage. And one is called the kiddushin, or the betrothal period, and the other is the huppah. I love to say that word, huppah. That is the actual wedding ceremony, two parts. Two families would, would draw up a contract that promised marriage, and it was a binding contract. And if during that contract period, during that betrothal period, if you violated that marriage vow, then you had to be divorced in an official sense. So it was more than an engagement. It's more than just giving the ring back. They were legally married, although there was no physical relationship. And Bible scholars tell us this was normally about a 12-month period of time. And it was a period of protection for the would-be husband and wife so that there would be a period to which they could prove their fidelity. They could prove that they were really going to be committed to this marriage. And oftentimes, they, they, they wouldn't even see each other a whole lot during that time. They maintained a certain distance, but they were betrothed. The promise had been made, a contract had been signed. 
Now, when you gave away your daughter to be married, and I've thought about this because this is the part of this that I'm going to kind of bring into the Christian wedding ceremony if this were to ever happen in our home. When you got to the point where you said, hey, we're going to make this deal between these two parties, it was very common for some kind of payment to be paid. I like that, don't you dads? I mean, after all, you think about what it costs to raise a young lady to the age of, you know, 18, 20, 23 years old. I mean, that, that's a lot of money, right? I mean, it's a lot of money it's spent. If you educate them, I mean, that's a lot of money. And so there was some expectation that there was going to be what was, what was called a mohar that was paid. In other cultures, we know it as a dowry. And the price of the girl would vary depending on the girl. It could be anything from a couple dozen sheep to a... I guess a lame chicken, you know, depending on the girl. And, and it had several purposes to pay, that, to pay that, that dowry or that mohar. Number one was to compensate the father because the father had expenses, right? Amen, dads? He had expenses. He had expenses up until that point, and guess what? When the hoopah came, he was actually going to have some even greater expenses. So number one was to compensate the father. Number two was it was kind of to act as a life insurance for the wife. Back in that culture, as in our culture today, men tend to go to be with Jesus uh, earlier than women. And it wasn't uncommon for a man to die in an early age, and so this would serve as a life insurance policy. And then also it was kind of a divorce insurance. Kind of like if you put this money up, the only way that you'd actually ever see that money again is if you inherited it from her father. In other words, if your marriage survived until her father went to be with the Lord, until her father went to heaven, that's the only way you'd see it again. So it was kind of like insurance. It tended to keep marriages together because you couldn't run around and and marry too many people or you'd be destitute. You'd lose everything that you had. And so the betrothal period was approximately one year prior to the hoopah, to the wedding itself, uh, when the marriage would be consummated physically. And the wedding would last for approximately seven days. Dad, you think you have it tough now uh, during a wedding. But, but think about this. For seven days, they were expected. I'm looking at Bill Zedites, and I'm thinking, dude, you would be so hosed. I mean, you would be spending like you'd have to work your whole life just for weddings. Think about that times the number of girls in your particular family. Very, very expensive. You have to feed them. You have to take care of them. It was a, it was a that's why they call it a hoopah. I mean, it was a celebration. And so Mary is betrothed to Joseph. She's in the period of time when she's legally bound to him, but there's no physical relationship, and yet the text says she's pregnant. That's a problem. We read in Luke chapter 1 that the angel Gabriel visits Mary and tells her that she's going to give physical birth to the Messiah. No big deal, right? (laughs) Just comes and says, hey, just want to let you know you're pregnant, even though, as she says, I've never known a man, I've never been sexually with a man. How can this be? And God said, it's because the Holy Spirit is, has implanted you with the child. You're going to give birth to the Son of God, this promised Messiah. The 400 years of silence is broken. This is what you're going to do. She's confused because she's a virgin, a virgin, but Gabriel calms her fears. And what does she do? She sings a song. She sings a song. That's where we get Mary's Magnificat. And she sings a song about how blessed she is to, to give birth to the, to the Messiah of the world. She tells Joseph, and let's just say he's not singing a song. That's not how he reacts. He doesn't know what's happening. His little world has just come to an end, and Joseph is a just and he's a righteous man, and no doubt he's, he's deeply committed to Mary, but 
uh, but he's, and, he, and he's been waiting with anticipation that day when, when both are proven during that period of, of the betrothal time and, and, and they can be together as husband and wife and they can consummate their marriage. And now his worst fears are realized. The young girl, the girl who no doubt has caught his eye, not only physically, but because she's also beautiful in character. We can assume that. God certainly wouldn't have placed his son into the womb of a, of a disrespectable young lady. Never would he have imagined in a million years that she would be unfaithful to him. The child is placed in her womb by the Holy Spirit, and initially Joseph doesn't really know what's going on, and he's only heard from Mary. Now I want you men, for just a moment, since this is about Joseph more than Mary this morning, I want you to think for just a moment what you would have done. Just use our equivalent in our culture. You're engaged to this woman, and you find out she's pregnant, and she comes to you and she doesn't say, hey, I need to confess this to you. I've had this affair. She tells you that an angel has visited her. And don't worry, I've been totally faithful to you. We are going to be the parents to the Son of God. Right? Just let that sink in for just a moment. That's where Joe is right now. That's what he's thinking. Verse 19. Her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. What we do know about Joseph is that he was a strict observer of the law and he would not proceed to marry her, but he resolved to divorce her as privately as possible. He had two options, by the way, in their culture. He could have publicly disgraced her or he could privately write up divorce papers. In fact, really, when you look back at, at history and, and you study a little bit about their Jewish laws and their culture, actually, he could have she could have literally been, been physically put to death. He can do that. He can disgrace her publicly. He had every right to disgrace her publicly. And instead, he decides that he's going to do something private. They're just going to kind of get a legal document signed up, and, and he's going to kind of sign it, and then he's going to go his way, and she's going to go her way. Can you imagine the struggle that must have existed, though, in his mind? This is a woman that he loves, this is the woman that he, up until that point, thought he trusted. He was probably very jealous thinking about, thinking about Mary and obviously that she'd had a relationship with another man, and yet he had an incredible love for her. Verse 20. Verse 20 says, but as he considered these things. I'm really convicted by that little phrase there, but as he considered these things. I've become convinced, I don't practice it real well sometimes in my life, but I've become convinced that that is something that we ought to do on a regular basis. Just sit back and consider things. How much better is it to think on things than just go and react and just respond? I believe if there were more deliberations in our judgments, there would be more mercy in them. Joseph was inclined to be merciful as God is and to forgive as he had been forgiven. In fact, one theologian wrote this while commenting on this passage. He said that it becomes us in many cases to gentle, to be gentle towards those that come under suspicion of having offended, to hope for the best concerning them and make the best of that which first appears bad in hopes that it may prove better. 
We're sometimes so quick to expose sin, aren't we? We're somehow very quick to get on the phone and, uh, and, and issue a prayer request for something that we've heard. And yet I really admire Joseph because rather than doing that, rather than responding, rather than getting angry, he's confused certainly, but he sits back and he considers these things. And it says, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph wasn't dreaming in the same way that you and I think of it. He fell asleep and he began to dream, and then his dream actually turns into reality, and the, the angel comforts him with the reality of God's intervention in the virgin birth. He's basically telling him the miraculous birth is going to require no human father because it's divinely conceived from God. Now imagine how Joseph must have felt at that particular moment. He was either afraid because he didn't want to bring himself uh, the reproach or the guilt of what was supposed to be sinful. He didn't know if he aligned himself with Mary. Would people continue to talk about how did, who was the father of this child? Or possibly he was simply afraid that she indeed was carrying the Son of God and what kind of responsibility would he have as the father of the Son of God. Verse 21. She'll bear a son and she'll call his name Jesus for he'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the word comes to him that she's going to give birth to the Savior. And all this took place in order that those prophecies that had been given so long ago might be fulfilled. Verse 24, when Joseph woke up from his sleep, here's the incredible thing. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. Now, I have read this for many, many years. I'm 47 years old. I know I don't look it, but I am. I've read this for many, many years. And I really don't think until this week that it really struck me. Verse 24, Joseph wakes up, and here's my translation. Joseph wakes up, and he's obedient. He wakes up from his sleep, and he's obedient. He does what is the incredibly difficult thing? Let me give you a few characteristics in reading uh, a particular uh, person's comment on this, on this text this week. They brought up some very interesting points, and I want to give these to you. Their, theirs was more linked to uh, men, but I think it's true of people in general. Uh, let me give you four principles. Number one, godly people care about what God says. Godly people care about what God says. Matthew tells us that he was a just man, and we can read it as just simply that he was a stand-up guy, that he was a good guy, not unlike some of the guys that are in this room this morning, but as a devout first-century Jew, he cared deeply about what God said. He cared deeply about what God had written, about how God said we should live life. Let me ask you this question this morning during this Christmas season and give you one of these principles that is rarely given during a Christmas season. Do you care more about what God says than what people say? It's interesting because we can always find somebody that will say something that will agree with our bent, our leading, our desires. But godly people care about what God says. Godly people are committed to doing what God's word says. 
That was certainly true of Joseph. Number two, godly people care more about what God thinks than what people think. We talked about this uh, when we had our series uh, Masquerade in the fall. But I want to ask you again, do you care more about what God thinks than what people think, or are you all wrapped up in what people think? This story highlights the amazing events of the virgin conception, a truth that even Joseph had a hard time embracing at first. Mary had a hard time embracing at first. For a young bride to turn up pregnant during her betrothal period, as I said earlier, was a crime, and it was potentially punishable by death. What would you have done? I would have been concerned. I'm convinced I would have been concerned about what people think, what people uh, might think about me if I choose to align myself, if I choose to, to marry this woman, what would they think about me? Yet Joseph demonstrates that godly people care more about what God thinks than what people think. Number three, godly people do the right thing, which is often not the easiest thing. Have you found that to be true in your own life? The easy thing is rarely rarely the best. Usually, the easiest thing to do is the easiest thing. Godly people do the right thing, which is often not the easiest. The easiest is often the wrong thing. When we get to verse 20, the clouds have begun to lift. An angel appears to Joseph in a dream and tells him not to fear, God, not to fear that God is behind these happenings. And so Joseph has a decision to make at that particular time. Will he do the right thing or will he do the easy thing? I want to challenge you as in your own life and, in, and I want to decide myself that godly people do the right thing and that's oftentimes not the easiest thing. Can you fathom the commission that this young father has been given now? All of us have struggles and, as parents, and, but I think Joseph kind of tops it all. He does the right thing. He names and he raises Jesus, and that's what godly people do. They step up and they do the right thing, even when that's hard. I'm so thankful, even in, in this last week of ministry, as I've interacted in the lives of people that are part of our body, that there are so many situations which I've been dealing with in the last few months where this is the testimony, that people are willing to do the right thing even though it's not the easiest thing. It's always the best thing. And what's an incredible thing as well is to see the heartache that comes when we step into doing the easy thing, the wrong thing, because it's the easy thing, and then the tragedy is to have to deal with the consequences of doing that wrong thing. Number four, Godly people willingly care for children, even those who are not biologically theirs. Did you get that one? You say, man, these are principles. I've never heard these principles mentioned in a Christmas message. Well, well good. Maybe we're giving you something new. This story, I think, demonstrates anything. It demonstrates that godly people care for children, even those who are not biologically theirs. It's apparent, uh, even from the surface of reading the story, that Jesus both is and isn't Joseph's son. In this light, it's not stretched to think of Jesus as being adopted, right? 
It's not a stretch to think that, that, that Jesus was adopted by Joseph, that Joseph was willing to step in and adopt the boy and provide the needed human connection for Jesus to come through the line of David. That had to take place. Imagine being the parent of the Son of God. Stop there for just a moment. Most of us as kids think we know everything, right? I mean, mine do. I did. But imagine being the parent of a kid that actually does know everything. Think about that just for a moment. Those of you that are in the throes of parenting adolescence, and they know everything, everything that you say is questioned. They've got a better way. They've heard of a better way. But imagine being the parent of a son who you know is the son of God. And when he says, no, I think you ought to do it this way, you really ought to do it that way because he's God. Imagine that. That's what Joseph signed up for. All the potential ridicule and scorn, doing the hard thing as opposed to the easy thing. And let's not underestimate the lifetime of questions that Joseph would have endured by seeking to care for this child, by, keeping, by, by taking Mary as his wife. But that's what godly people do. They care for orphans and widows and seek to look out for the fatherless as a reflection of the heart of God. It's interesting because one of the things that we've really been blessed with here at Northwest, and I'm, I'm very thankful for this, is a number of families who've done just this who've decided to take care of children that aren't biologically theirs. I've been blessed personally as an uncle with my nephew, uh, Drew Jackson, and his wife, Cassie, as, as they adopted little Brock from Ethiopia. Now, I'm just the uncle, my favorite uncle. I mean, I, I have to say that. But, but I'm, I'm just the uncle, but I'm telling you, I am a blessed man because Drew and Cassie decided to step out of a comfort zone and decided to care for a little boy that wasn't biologically theirs. Some of you in the room this morning, that's where you live. You actually are living out the truth of James chapter 1, verse 27, that says this, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. That's what you're doing. God's pleased with that. That's what godly people do. I hope we have more of that here at Northwest. Verse 25 says, but, but Joseph knew her not. In other words, he didn't have sex with her. He didn't have any kind of a physical relationship with, with her until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. If we weren't running out of time, I'd, I'd give you one more principle about purity and about a man being willing to do the right thing, even though he didn't have to do the right thing, but he, he didn't even have any kind of a sexual relationship with her until she had given birth to her son and called his name Jesus. That was his final act of obedience to God's instructions through the angel, that Joseph would call his name Jesus, indicating that he was to be the Savior. Here's the end of that story, by the way, if you've never heard it. Maybe you've just uh, suspected this. We know nothing else of Joseph's life except his taking the infant Jesus to the temple for dedication in Luke chapter 2 taking Mary and Jesus into Egypt to protect them from Herod's bloody edict, and then the return. 
taking his family to Passover in Luke chapter 2, the end of the chapter, Passover in Jerusalem. We have no idea when he died. We don't know how he died. It was probably well before Jesus' public ministry. We know it was before his crucifixion because you remember as Jesus was hanging on the cross for your sin and for my sin, he gave his mother into the care of John. If Jesus has had no human parents, then he wouldn't have been man. And on the other hand, if Jesus had two human parents, he could not have avoided the contamination of humanity. And so he had to be both the child of man and yet the child of God. And that's exactly what he was. He was born of a sinner, and yet he was sinless because he was equally born of God. You can look at it this way. Deity cancels out humanity's curse. Let me real quickly before we close, let me let you think about these things. Joseph's life teaches us these four things. God often uses the humble and willing rather than the high and mighty to accomplish his greatest missions on earth. Aren't you glad for that? How many of us, if he only chose the high and mighty, how many many of us honestly would ever be used? Not me. Not you. God uses the humble and the willing rather than the high and mighty to accomplish his greatest missions on earth. The greatest things that have been accomplished for the cause of Christ have happened when humble and willing people have been willing to be obedient. Number two. Thinking before responding can often be a life-changing moment. Think about if Joseph just simply would have gone through with what his initial thoughts were without stopping and thinking. He would have just simply responded. He would have publicly disgraced her or would he, he would have given her that certificate of divorce. Number three, God will use anyone for his purposes no matter how unlikely. And number four, God fulfills his purposes by using people of strong character and unquestioning obedience. If you want God to use you, you have to be a person of character and you have to be a person who is committed to being obedient. That's why I think our text very simply says that Joseph was a just man and then he did as the angel had commanded him. He was a man of character and he was obedient. And when we behave that way, I believe God is capable of using even people like me and some of you whose faces I'm looking at right now to do some of the greatest things when we're willing, when we're obedient, and we're people of strong character. You say Joseph, an insignificant person? (laughs) Ends up he's pretty important, isn't he? Next time you see one of those living nativities, you shout out, Hey, Joseph, get in the front and center. You're important. Don't really do that. Probably, I mean, I don't know. It might ruin the moment. He's important. While ordinary, incredibly important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thanks for a different look at this particular text. The virgin birth, while incredibly important, our salvation would not be possible were it not for the birth of the Son of God. So certainly important for us to focus on that at this season and in this text. But God, I'm so thankful that you use everyday, ordinary people to accomplish extraordinary things as part of your plan for mankind. 
The fact that you use Joseph gives me great hope, and I hope it gives others great hope and purpose for life because we know you delight in using those that are insignificant when we are simply people of character and we're people who are willing to be obedient to you rather than to the whims of people around us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.